Our first reading is from the book of James, chapter 2, verses 1 to 17. My brothers, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. For if a man wearing a gold ring and fine clothing comes into your assembly, and a poor man in shabby clothing also comes in, and if you pay attention to the one who wears the fine clothing and say, you sit here in a good place, while you say to the poor man, you stand over there, or sit down at my feet, have you not then made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Listen, my beloved brothers, has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom, which he has promised to those who love him? But you have dishonored the poor man. Are not the rich ones who oppress you and the ones who drag you into court? Are they not the ones who blaspheme the honorable name by which you are called? If you really fulfill the royal law according to the scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, you are doing well. But if you show partiality, you are committing sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. For whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become accountable for all of it. For he who said do not commit adultery also said do not murder. If you do not commit adultery, but do murder, you have become a transgressor of the law. So speak and so act as those who are to be judged under the law of liberty. For judgment is without mercy to one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed and filled, without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? So also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. The word of the Lord. Our second reading is from the prophet Zechariah, chapter 7, verses 8 to 14. And the word of the Lord came to Zechariah saying, thus says the Lord of hosts, render true judgments, show kindness and mercy to one another. Do not oppress the widow, the fatherless, the sojourner or the poor, and let none of you devise evil against another in your heart. But they refused to pay attention and turned a stubborn shoulder and stopped their ears that they might not hear. They made their hearts diamond hard, lest they should hear the law and the words that the Lord of hosts had sent by his spirit through the former prophets. Therefore, great anger came from the Lord of hosts. As I called and they would not hear, so they called and I would not hear, says the Lord of hosts. And I scattered them with a whirlwind among all the nations that they had not known. Thus the land they left was desolate, so that no one went to and fro, and the pleasant land was made desolate. The word of the Lord. Zechariah 7. The Lord of hosts says this, Render true judgments, show kindness and mercy to one another. Do not oppress the widow, the fatherless, the sojourner, or the poor, and let none of you devise evil against one another in your hearts. Critics say 
the church does the opposite of this passage. Instead of fulfilling what this passage says, critics say the church speaks religiously but acts oppressively. And there are many people who refuse to believe in Christianity because of its history of injustice or because they've experienced the oppression of the church. We continue on looking today at the questions that people have for Christianity. And I'm going to have to say, as I've been preaching through this series all summer, this has been one of the hardest series to preach on. It's been great to do so, but I feel like every time I get up to speak, I am not qualified to say anything. Who am I to speak on suffering, or being just, or sexuality? And yet, here we are, we're entering these things, because these are the questions people in our culture have, and we need to be able to understand the reality and depth of those questions, and also what the Christian message has to say about them. So, we enter in. And when people ask and question how can you believe in Christianity with such a history of injustices, we have to look at some of the things that get brought up. From the 11th century through the 16th century, the church was responsible for a lot of brokenness and death and sin. The crusades to drive out infidels, killing them all, inquisitions by both the Catholics and the Protestants, basically whoever was in power was torturing and executing the other. The history of medieval Christianity is not a good one. And then if you look at the history of the American church, it doesn't get that much better. We're very aware, many of us are very aware, and have become so over the past couple of years, of the, the plague of slavery and its continued ramifications. And for decades and centuries, people claiming the name of Christianity upheld institutional racism and slavery. And the ramifications have been felt even to today. Christians saying it's okay. More recently, if you've experienced these sorts of injustices yourself, it's probably because of the way that Christians in some circles some churches have oppressed atheists, anyone who doesn't agree with them theologically, homosexuals, people whose lifestyles outside of Christian norm, even down to biology teachers and Democrats. Like, we find somebody and we're going to attack them. We're good at that. And then, of course, there is the more direct evil of the sexual abuse scandals that have hit the church over the past decades priests, pastors, youth leaders, people whose trust has been broken, whose innocence has been destroyed. Tim Keller in the book Reason for God that we're reading through right now points out that our experiences with the church will shape our perceptions of Christianity. So many of you might hear some of these things and say, well, I've never experienced that, and I'm so glad that's the case. If you've, if you've experienced kind, generous, humble church communities, if you have known Christians who had integrity of thought and action, then you will more likely, like me, be predisposed to accept the core beliefs of Christianity. 
But if, on the other hand, you've experienced a lot of the hypocrisy of nominal Christians, people who claim the name of Christianity, but the way they deal with their families or their employees or people in the world would suggest that you don't want anything to do with that Christianity. Or you've dealt with fanatical Christians who are harsh and judgmental. I know that probably some of you have been in churches where they were controlling and oppressive. Or you've been hurt by the church. You've been one of those victims of abuse. If that's your experience, or if that's somebody else's experience, then it's going to be very hard to buy into this Christianity. The Christian message is going to seem unconvincing, and it would take a long time and a lot of grace and the power of the Spirit to break that down. The reality is, as a church, as Christians today, we need to be willing to face up to this history, present and past, that's not that great. In fact, it's downright evil. And we need to confess the injustices that have been done in the name of Christianity in the church. The inquisitions, the crusades, wars, slavery, oppression of enemies and outsiders, they're wrong. They are sin. And if you personally have dealt with abuse by church or ministers, I am sorry. It is wrong. It is evil. It is sin. It is damnable. And I am sorry for you. There's nothing excusable ever in that. These evils under the name of Christianity or the church, however, contradict the gospel. They do not line up with Jesus. And I would say they are outside of the bounds of Christianity. The gospel, the core message of Jesus' death for us, is a message for the poor and the needy and the broken and the most vulnerable. And the gospel challenges all of us as believers to lives of radical mercy and justice, the exact opposite of much of our history. People who go down this road of contradicting Christianity say, the problem is this, religious fanaticism is a root of injustice and violence. This is true. This is true because religion depends upon the actions of its adherents. In a religious system, there is rules you must follow, and if you accomplish them, or if there's a system of things you must believe in, and if you believe in them, then you merit eternity, heaven, nirvana. And in religious systems, it's going to lead to self-righteousness and judgmentalness, because I've done the right things, therefore I'm in the right religion. The problem with religion is that it causes people to be insecure. Because they're never quite sure they've done enough to measure up according to their religious standards, they're always trying to put others down to make themselves feel better. Because in a system that depends upon you doing good, the best way to feel like you've done enough is to make sure others have done less or worse. People who are religious tend to spiritualize things and make every interaction one of cosmic good and evil to the point where 
it ends up being us versus them always. And it's easy to oppress those who are unfaithful or don't live up to the moral standards of the religious code you're following. Tim Keller, in The Reason for God, puts it this way. Religious people assume they are right with God because of their moral behavior and right doctrine. This leads naturally to feelings of superiority toward those who do not share their religiosity, and from there to various forms of abuse, exclusion, and oppression. The assumption is Christianity functions religiously. And I will say that when Christians are or have been racist, misogynist, oppressive, and violent, this is true. They're functioning religiously. But I will also say they're either nominal Christians, meaning they're claiming the name of Christian or the church, but they don't actually believe or are trying to live according to the gospel. Or they are fanatics about religion, and they think Christianity is about being good. But it's not. There is a major difference between religiousness and the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ. And I think it overturns some of the questions and challenges of Christianity and its unjust past. See, the gospel, if you're really believing the good news of Jesus Christ, is going to lead to humility, to generosity, to mercy, the exact opposite of injustice and oppression. What is the basic gospel message? It's that we are saved by grace, not by our good works. It says that all of us are undeserving. All of us are sinful. Justice for any of us would be condemnation. But the gospel of grace is that Jesus was condemned in our place. You know, the good news of Christianity is that God experienced injustice for us. He was oppressed. We see this in the prophet Isaiah when he looks forward to the death of Jesus Christ. Listen to some of what is said by the prophet. He, talking about Jesus, was oppressed. Jesus was oppressed. And he was afflicted, and yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, and like a sheep that before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away. He was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgressions of my people. Although he had done no violence, and there was no deceit in his mouth. That, that's the definition of injustice. Jesus experienced injustice. Taking our just condemnation so that you and I might be justified. He was innocent, and he was oppressed and unjustly crucified in our place so that you and I might be justified, made right with God. That is a gospel of grace. It's not something we've earned or done, it's what he has done for us. He experienced injustice, that we might be justified and made right. This gospel message is one that gives us a vision of radical love and radical equality. Paul summarizes it in Romans 5.8 when he says this, God demonstrates his love for us in this. 
while we were still sinners, while you and I still walk in sin, guilty, Christ died for us. And the effect of this, Paul explicates in in Galatians 3.28, something that was incredibly radical when he says, because it's by faith and not by our goodness, that means that we are all equal. There's no higher class or lower class citizens in the family of God. There's neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female, for all of us are one in Christ. Do you know how radical this was in the first century? We take it for granted because we live in the West, but do you know what our Western view of equality is based on? It's based on that, the influence of Pauline Christianity and the gospel on the Western world, understanding that everyone, everyone has equality. The gospel should never drive us to push down others because we're saved by grace and all of us are equal in the eyes of God. Religious fanaticism might lead to oppression and violence, but gospel fanaticism should lead to humility. Because we are sinners, every one of us, there's no sense that one of us is better or more superior than anybody else. Instead, we should have high regard for everyone. It doesn't matter whether they are of the wrong political persuasion, a different ethnicity or race, or or if they don't believe what you believe. We are sinners. We humbly acknowledge the humanity of everyone. Every one of us is a sinner. And because we are loved, because God loves us deeply and died for us, it moves us to generosity and mercy. You know, when we talk about the word love, many of us think a couple of things. We think things that we like, like I love football, or I love Beethoven, or I love lamb kebabs. But what we really mean is I like something, right? We can also talk about being in love, this romantic feeling you have, or even some sense of, of a kinship, family, your children, your dog, you love them. When the Bible talks about love, especially in the gospel sense, it's talking about sacrifice. Me dying for you, because that's what Jesus did. This is love. Christ died for us. Love is sacrificial, and love in the gospel is grace-driven. It is for the undeserving. That's why I use the word generous and generosity. The gospel should drive us to humility and to deep generosity, caring mercifully for all the needs of others, even for them. And you know, all of us have a them. All of us have people we think less of. It might be because of their political persuasion. Might be because they're the sort of people who go to tractor pulls and amusement parks. It might be because they live in a certain area. They're particularly rich and they belong to a country club. We don't like them. Or they're hitchhiking and so we assume they're wasting their life. We don't like them. They're of that ethnicity where people grow beards and believe in another religion. We don't like them. There's always a them for us. The gospel calls us to humbly acknowledge their humanity because we're all sinners and to extend radical generosity, sacrificing ourselves for them. 
when love and equality and humility and generosity and mercy don't mark us, it's religion and not the gospel. Religious fanaticism may lead to hatred and violence and oppression. The gospel cannot. Tim Keller elsewhere wrote this, talking about fanatics, meaning religious fanatics. Think of people you consider religious fanatics. And then he goes on to say, what are they like? Well, you know what they're like. They're overbearing, self-righteous, opinionated, insensitive, harsh. Why? It's not because they are too Christian, but because they are not Christian enough. What strikes us as overly fanatical is actually a failure to be fully committed to Christ and his gospel. He then goes on to talk about Martin Luther King. And when MLK was in the South trying to overturn racism, he didn't say, hey guys, what we need to do is become more secular. We need to recognize in this, this whole religious thing that you guys have bought into, all of you white churches, the problem is that you've bought into that and it's gonna make you hold down black people. What he says is he goes back to the Bible. He reads from the prophets. He has a view that he's preaching, that MLK preaches, that is bound in the image of God, bound, bound up in creation in every human being. And he preaches a gospel of redemption by grace, that we are all sinners saved by the death of Jesus, and has a vision of heaven that is a Christian vision of the restoration of humanity when all races, all nations, will gather together worshiping God. He calls America to be more Christian, more faithfully Christian, not less. In other words, to upend injustices in this world, we need to be more Christian, more gospel-rooted, not less. Some, like Karl Marx, have said the problem is religion holds down the poor. It holds down the vulnerable. And there's truth in that, but I don't think it's true with the gospel. The gospel is instead a message of hope for the most poor and the most vulnerable. You know, one of the biggest blights of extreme poverty in the world is the shame that goes with it. It's incredibly shameful when you are incredibly poor. And that's even true if everyone around you is poor. And this is often because if you think about the systems that our world has built up, whether it is our secular society with its meritocracy based on you've got to achieve and get success, or religious systems that are be good in order to get to heaven, or even karmic systems of reincarnation based on you will get what you deserve in the end. All of these would suggest that you are poor and you deserve it. Either you're not smart enough, you're addicted to something, you're a failure which is usually the case in our country. Or globally, it's because of something you did. God is striking you with extreme poverty. Or in a karmic system like Hinduism or Buddhism, where you have this reincarnation view, if you're a Dalit, if you're one of the untouchables, well, it's because in your past life you were bad. So don't try to get out of your caste. You should be ashamed. The gospel 
is hope for the poor. James puts it very clearly in chapter 2, verse 5, when he says, Listen, my beloved brothers, has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom which he has promised to those who love him? God chose the poor. In other words, we are saved by grace. You're not in because you're better, smarter, stronger. And that's good news in a culture that values success and bigger, stronger, smarter. It's good news for the poor to know that all of us, whether wealthy or poor, are equally having access to the good news and grace of God. And the promise is you are heirs of the kingdom. You know, a vision of eternity that is all wrongs being righted, all your brokenness healed, everything being restored as it was meant to be, that is not a false hope for the poor. This world is broken. There, a vision that one day there will be things righted is not a false vision. It is real, eternal hope. Jesus, of course, suggests that you'd rather be poor than rich when he said it's harder for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven than for a camel to go through the eye of a needle. See, the gospel is for those who are needy, who admit their poverty in every way, and material wealth can blind you to spiritual poverty. A good friend of ours worked with high school kids through Young Life in a uh, private school about 20 years ago, and it was a very wealthy girls' school. And she said after working there for some months, she said one of the hardest things about trying to share the good news of Jesus Christ to these girls is that they can buy everything they need. They don't need anything. So when you say you need God, they say, well, I've already got a new phone. I've already got a new car. Everything they could possibly need, they had at their fingertips. And she said it's like their material wealth blinds them to their spiritual poverty. The gospel is one of the unique systems that doesn't just pity the poor, it actually pities the wealthy because we are the most spiritually destitute by nature. The gospel is hope for the poor, the sinful, the outsider, the vulnerable. And honestly, the way to salvation is to realize how poor and needy you are. And so it points to the poor as an example. Their physical poverty makes it much easier to recognize spiritual poverty in a way that our wealth often blinds us to the desperation of our situation. The gospel humbles us, causes us to extend grace. It is hope for the most lowly and down and out. And the gospel calls us as Christians to lives of justice and mercy, the exact opposite of histories of injustice. James lays this out very clearly in the chapter that we had read. He writes in verse one of chapter two, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. That word partiality or favoritism in another translation is literally receiving the face. It's making judgments based on externals. And what it seems like the church was doing was favoring the rich, which he goes on to say there. 
favoring the rich and treating the poor as unworthy, dehumanizing them. And James says, you cannot show partiality. Why? Because your faith is in Jesus. And it would contradict the gospel of Jesus to show partiality. Because Jesus says, all of you are sinful. No one is better. And all of you are equally sons and daughters of God. No one is worse. James goes on to make it very clear when he explains what our faith should look like. In verses 15 and 16, he writes, If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking daily food, and one of you says to them, Go in peace, be warmed and filled, without giving them the things they need for the body, what good is that? So also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. Now this doesn't mean that our good works merit salvation, but are marks of our salvation. A tree doesn't produce little red things hanging on it in order to become an apple tree. It produces apples because it's an apple tree. The apples reveal what it is. It doesn't make it become one. If your tree doesn't have apples, who's to know whether it's an apple tree or not, is what James is saying. Saving faith, authentic Christianity, is oppression, violence. But by mercy, tangible acts of kindness, humility. James puts it clearly, mercy, in verse 13, mercy triumphs over judgment, he says. Mercy is not just being kind in some soft sort of way. Mercy is actually caring for those most needy. Think about how Jesus it ends up defining it in his parable of the Good Samaritan. The Good Samaritan, if you're not familiar with that, is that a certain man was riding along the road, and, and, and he was beaten up by robbers and left naked and dying. Robbed, beaten, naked and dying. And along come two very religious guys. They pass by on the other side, but then along comes a Samaritan, the enemy of the Jewish man who's lying there. And the Samaritan goes and cares for his enemy. He clothes him, he bandages him, he takes him to a local inn, a hospital basically, and pays for the man's care, his enemy. Jesus then asks the religious guys who he's telling the parable to, so which of the three, the two religious guys or the Samaritan, which of the three did the right thing? And the religious answer, it's the one who showed mercy. That's what mercy is. It's to find your enemy, and to clothe him, and heal him, and pay for his needs. It's essentially what Zechariah was talking about in Zechariah 9. Mercy is to provide and protect those who are most vulnerable. The list here of the widow, the fatherless, the sojourner, or foreign person, are the three types of people in the ancient world who had no rights, who had no way of earning a living on their own, and they were completely helpless. The fatherless, the widow, and the foreigner had no rights. It was not supposed to be the case in the people of God. All who are poor, all who are vulnerable, are meant to come under the protection of God's people. 
This is the opposite of histories of oppression and violence and racism. The issue for us as a church, for Christ Church Vienna, is this. I, I actually don't think it's the partiality, the favoritism that James is talking about. I've not seen blatant extreme racism or violent oppression and war coming out of you in our church. The problem is insulation and isolation. We live in Vienna or nearby. And it's hard to see the extreme poverty and brokenness in the world around us. If we're going to fulfill our calling as gospel-oriented Christians, we need to first get out. Get out. If we're going to do justice and mercy as the gospel calls us. For some of us, and for many of us, that's going to be getting out into the world. You know some of these statistics. 30 million slaves today, children in the single-digit ages forced into prostitution. Last year alone, there were 38 million refugees. Do you know how exhausting it is after an eight, 10-hour car ride from the beach back, and you're just so glad to be at home and in your own bed? How about an eight to 10-month sojourn with no home, no bed, no food, living in tents and squalor, and no way out. That's the plight of a refugee, 38 million in the world today. According to International Justice Mission, four billion people live outside of the rule of law, the hope of safety. And two billion, two billion people in the world today live on $2 a day. As gospel-believing Christians, our hearts should break. We need to get out, not just out of the country, but outside of a place like Vienna to see the needs of the world around us here in America. We should be the sorts of people who are seeking healing of institutional racism and the cycles of poverty and violence in black America, regardless of whether that's our issue or not. As Christians, it should be our issue because it's a problem and a need. We should be the ones speaking up for the most vulnerable and think about how our culture is increasingly disregarding life. The incapacitated, the imprisoned, the aging, the unborn. Humans who do not have a voice. Who will fight for them? Who will speak for them? We need to get out. Pope Francis, in his first big kind of book that he put out a couple of years ago called The Joy of the Gospel was challenging his own Catholic church to live the gospel more fully. And this is what he wrote, I prefer a church which is bruised, hurting, and dirty because it has been out on the streets rather than a church which is unhealthy from being confined and from clinging to its own security. My hope is that we will be moved by the fear of remaining shut up within rules which make us harsh judges, within habits which make us feel safe, while at our door people are starving, and Jesus does not tire of saying to us, give them something to eat. Get out, is what he's telling us. It's one of the beauties of not having a church building. We are forced out every Sunday. Get out. And that can even be locally. While some of the most dire places are around the globe, 
The reality is injustice and brokenness is all around us if we would just get out of ourselves. Are there any widows in our community? Any foreigners in our community? Any victims of violence? One in four Americans have dealt with sexual or physical abuse in their life. Who's sick and suffering? Who's hurting on your street? We need to get out. Okay, so do you feel guilty yet? Here's the problem with guilt. It's not going to work. Guilt is a religious motivation. Guilt will never drive you far enough to do enough. Should and ought can only motivate so far, but there'll be limits to what I'm willing to do or who I'm willing to help. I'll never help my enemy in a religious system. And eventually, guilt just leads to tediousness and joylessness and monotony, like, ugh. And on top of that, you can never be sure you've done enough. Because here's the reality. You cannot give enough of your time or your money to meet the needs of the world around you. You could say, well, I give a tithe. For those of you who don't know, a tithe is, in some Christian circles, 10% of your income you give to the church or other charitable organizations. But just as starters, a tithe is actually not that biblical. There's actually, if you're going to follow the biblical rule, you've got to go to like 20 to 25%. So do you feel good about yourself now if you're giving 10%? No, you're going to fall short. And on top of that, Jesus says, oh, I want everything. Okay, so give everything. You see, you can't get enough. You can't give enough. And if you're living by guilt trying to fulfill these things, then you're never going to be able to go on a vacation when you recognize there are people living on $2 a day. Really, you're going to buy the pair of $100 shoes? People are living on $2 a day. See, guilt's going to fall short. You're always going to fall short. The gospel is a different motivator because it transforms our view of ourselves and the world around us. Because we are sinful, we are humble, and we recognize that every one of us is equally in need. And so we have a high view of humanity and every single person and their worth and value. And it transforms our desires. Because we are loved by grace by God, it transforms our desires to love God more and more and more. And that transformed desires cause our mind, our heart, our worldview to become aligned with God's. And we start seeing the world around us from God's perspective. That is a different motivation by the power of the Spirit to step out and see other people and want to care for them. Not just I should, but to actually desire it. And as you dig deeper into the gospel, as you dig in deeper, it transforms our very thoughts so that we are motivated by gratitude and rightness and calling and a vision of eternity. A life of justice and mercy is not about fulfilling shoulds. It's actually about digging deeper into the gospel and letting it change you so that you're always getting out of yourself. The church, for some people, and around the globe, has lost credibility. So we must do justice and mercy so that our gospel is believable. We must also do justice and mercy because it is the gospel. Let's pray. Jesus, in the gift of your Son, we have the perfectly just one suffering injustice 
for our judgment and in our place. Have mercy upon us and give us the joy and hope of the good news of Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray, amen. Thy mercy, O oh, deliverer.